professional clacker back home, you know, just don't, don't bring the clacker with me. <laughs> Travel gotta, light is good. Yeah, so I've just got the, the nice claps. <laughs> um, what's up everyone, welcome to the North Leeds Jits podcast. Today on the show I'm joined uh, again for me, on the, uh, for the second time interviewing uh, Richard Kerrigan here, um, but first time on the North Leeds Jits podcast. Which is a great friend of mine. We met back in Thailand a couple of years ago, and um, we just kind of got on really well, and yeah. kind of kept in touch ever since. Where was um, that? Was that 2017 or 2018? No, I think it might have even been 2019. Was you know? it 2019? Yeah, I think that's when I started traveling, and I went straight to Thailand. Okay. Um, but it seems like we've known like, each other longer, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's just a lot to do with jujitsu in general, isn't it? Like you make kind of those close kind of connections, connections quite quickly. Yeah, people with the same mindsets, people with the same interests and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you, um, <clears throat> Richard, forgive me if I ask some of the questions that we often talk about anyway. Yeah. Because obviously we've got a load of white belts back home, uh, kind of quite new to all, you know, six months or so into jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. And they'll be interested in certain kind of questions we might have covered of before. Of course, ask away. So, Richard, you're a black belt under um, Hodger Gracie. Yes. Um, and when did you start out jiu-jitsu? I started out jiu-jitsu back in either 2008 or 2009, um, but I was at a Mac Dojo before um, without realizing I was at a Mac Dojo before. Yeah. Um, I was very into mixed martial arts, UFC. Um, back in 2008 and nine, there was only like three or four of them a year rather than one every second weekend. And so there was the anticipation and the buildup to them. And so you, you look forward to them more. Um, but then in 2008, who were the big names in the UFC? Was that George Pierre kind of time or was that um, He was on the up. Right. I don't think he had won his first title. He was a, maybe a year or two later. It was uh, your Chuck Liddell's, your Tito right. Ortiz's, Matt Hughes. Um, okay. um, had a couple of awesome masses, ma- ma- matches with Frank Trigg. Um, heavyweights, it would have been like... Tim Sylvia. So were these the people you were kind of looking up to, was it? I just like violence. <laughs> <laughs> and it was uh, it was more entertaining than boxing. Right. Um, um, I think it was also spectacle of the new. Um, it was like, oh my God, I can't believe that this is allowed. Um, and yeah, but... With my interest in that, it was then looking for places that um, a, a buddy of mine was like, there's this place in Wimbledon that um, that teaches uh, mixed martial arts, all types uh, of martial arts. So let's give it a try. And so we went and not knowing anything. I mean, as a kid, I had like a, a little bit of a karate background, um, but not knowing anything, it seemed like it was a legit place because the one of the instructors had done Muay Thai in Thailand for a little bit. Um, but it was only after being there six months. So it was like, yeah, these people don't know anything. Mm. Um, after, uh, how did you know that? Because so many people like will do 
martial arts for years, you know, if you look at, you know, McDojo life type martial arts, they'll do it for years and years and years and then still And they not. buy into it. Yeah, exactly. How, how did you have that sense? After six months, um, the instructors had kind of run out of stuff to teach us. Right. And so we were then going over the same things again. <clears throat> um, the instructors would also not know certain names for certain moves and certain positions. Um, very much okay. So the, the the one of the main ones he had a traditional jiu-jitsu background and boxing background, amateur boxing background, but um, he would be trying to teach ju Brazilian jiu-jitsu things, thinking that there was a crossover because uh, there's jiu-jitsu in the name. Um, after six months. Us as uh, who had been there quite a while were having to teach um, the new newbies that walked in, um, and there were two blue belts that would occasionally come in because and there were one was a Roger Gracie blue belt. I'm not sure where the other blue belt came from, but they would come in because they lived like two minutes away and they'd come in on the weekends for the open mats. And because they were doing proper jujitsu, it was like, this stuff is amazing. Mm. Um, the other warning that it was a Mac Dojo is that they started to develop their own grading in MMA. Um, and so the, the one grading which I missed, there were several of the people that were awarded a red belt or a green belt in MMA. And like a quick Google search was like, this is not a thing. <laughs> yeah. not, not a thing. Um, by that stage, I'd really enjoyed the ground, uh, the groundwork. I was never a fan of striking. Um, uh, and the groundwork just seemed a little bit more cerebral, a little bit more bait and switch um, using deception to get what you want. And um, yeah, when um, one of the blue belts said that he was going to be training at uh, Ray Stevens Academy in Wimbledon, um, I should give it a go. I went and tried and absolutely loved it. It was an hour and a half class um, in a cricket hall. And so it was a little bit difficult to get to. Um, it was a train and two buses or a tube and two buses. Uh, and would, uh, was it Ray teaching the classes then? Ray would occasionally <laughs> teach. He was teaching a lot of judo back then because um, he's a uh, Olympian judo, judoka. Uh, there was a Brazilian Marcel who was there for a couple of months before he went back to Brazil. Um, and then because it was an affiliate of Roger Gracie, um, there would be um, higher belts from Roger Gracie that would come down and teach. And so we had Dominic Dibbets, who is now owner of Matt House in Reading. Um, uh, Tom Gensk. <laughs> <coughs> uh, Tom Gensk, who owns an academy in Leipzig in Germany. Um, and a few others would periodically pop in. Was Ollie Geddes ever instructing? I think Ollie Geddes might have also taught for a while. Um, so it was a nice, I mean, at the stage they were purple belts and brown belts, but then they've gone on to achieve lots of great things, those instructors. And so I felt quite privileged knowing them on the up and up. Hmm. Uh, and what, 
what were your uh, aspirations in jiu-jitsu at that time? Was it just you just enjoyed training or did you think, oh, this is going to be a, a bigger part of uh, my life as a whole? As a white belt, um, I think I was still buying into like the whole mixed martial arts and how Brazilian jiu-jitsu translated into the mixed martial arts aspect of it. Um, still really enjoyed pride, still really enjoyed um, those early UFCs. Um, and I just thought it was cool to be learning all this, um, all these interesting techniques and how to control people. And some, when you're a white belt, submissions are so cool. And um, I do remember within like two weeks of being at Ray Stevens Academy, it's like, I can see myself getting my black belt. I think I found what I really enjoy. Hmm. Um, and six months into... Can I, can I pause on that for a second? Yeah. Did, did you know how difficult the journey would be at that time to get a, to get a black belt? Was it, was it kind of quite laid out I, in your head? I, or was that a naive thought at the time? Um, I don't think it was a naive thought. Um, looking looking online and looking through i don't even think reddit was a thing back then but so it was Sherdog was the big yeah. forum um and looking at for, of the bjj forum and it was always like the average length it takes to get to a black belt is 10 years if you're training three times a week and it's like I can do that. That's easy. Right. It's okay. Like, so yeah, you had a good idea of like. I had a good idea. Yeah. I can train three times a week. Um, I'm going to try and do it in under that. Um, and I think six months in, um, Roger came down to do a seminar. Now, um, the blue belt, uh, whose name is Tom, he's a good friend of mine that got me into Ray Stevens Academy, um, would tell me a t a tra about training at Roger Gracie Academy, which was in Kensal Rise, um, the original one. And from there, it was um, then reading about Roger and then watching shitty YouTube videos and like oh yeah like this guy is i mean he's he, he's one of the best of the world and he teaches in london and when he came in for a seminar i still remember it was a seminar where it was him um and it was oh god what's his name i can see his face it was a two-time olympic uh gold medalist from japan and they did a seminar at Ray Stevens Academy together. And in that seminar, I was like, I'm going to get my black belt from Roger. I don't know how. I don't know what I'd need to do. But eventually, I'm going to um, get, well, I had two thoughts. It was either going to be Roger or it was going to be Braulio. Um, you know what? Just, I want you to continue on that. But I remember listening to Ray Stevens talk about that seminar and uh, – um, on uh, Daniel Strauss's podcast, yeah, and um, they really wanted to see uh, Hodger and this guy have a role to see how it would go. Yeah, and I think like maybe like before 
before, it was either before or after the seminar, like I think people had left and they had like a bit of a role. Mm. And Ray, Ray said it was just interesting, didn't, didn't really elaborate on what happened, but he was saying like, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to see. Uh, yeah. A two-time Olympic champion and a, yeah. at that stage, Roger was maybe five or seven time or something around that um, jiu-jitsu champion, world champion. And when did he win ADCC? Was it 2007? That sounds about right. Yeah. And so, yeah, he was ADCC, double ADCC. So, yeah, it would have been interesting. Um, so you thinking about you want to get your black belt from either Hodger or... Or Brian. Only because they were the two best guys in, in uh, I guess, in Europe, actually. Uh, and they were both in England. I can't think of anyone else of that acclaim that was in Europe. Um and it took a couple of years for me to get through to Roger Gracie Academy. It was, I, I got there as a purple belt. So about six years into the journey um, before I became a permanent member of Rogers. I'd always, I'd go up and train there occasionally being an affiliate. Um, but yeah, uh, it was the second academy uh, in Ladbrook Grove where I became a member. Right. Yeah. Uh, so tell me a little bit about. Well, I kind of want to. I want to know about um, each of your. Each, can you tell me a story about each time you got a new belt? Like, do you remember? Do you remember each time you got a new belt? Was there any particular stories associated with it? Uh, um. So from white to blue. I honestly can't remember. I'd have to go and look back at some grading photos or that's terrible. <laughs> I can't remember white to blue. Um, from blue to purple, uh, I do remember because I got graded with a longtime training partner, Nate. Um, we started roughly the same time. Um, and he's one of the few people from my journey to white belt that has been there the whole way through. Mm. Uh, and it was at, so Ray Stevens before it had its permanent location moved around a couple of places and um, it, it was at a school called Blossom House and it was my buddy Tom uh, who promoted me. Ooh, actually I think my white to blue was might have been Tom Gangsk, but I'm not sure. Um, purple to brown um, was quite interesting as a as a story. Um, I had done. I got promoted by Tom Buckmaster. I then wanted to get into competing, and I didn't want to get to black belt and just be an average black belt. I wanted to be a black belt that had a proven competition track record. And so at purple belt, I, I needed to change academies. At Ray's, um, apart from the instructors, I was the highest belt. And so to foster a good competition uh, ethos, I needed to go to a place that had a competition team. Um, at the time, <clears throat> Gracie Baja London Bridge had an exceptional competition team and 
um, it was easy to get to. Uh, I was there for 18 months and work situation changed. And so I then moved over to Rogers. And so essentially, I think I was purple belt for four years. I got to Rogers as a four stripe purple belt, but still had to wait 18 months, two years before I got my brown belt. Mm. Um, as, as a quick aside, when did Hodger Gracie split from Gracie Baha? Do you remember? I think it was when he set up his own academy. Mm. Yeah. I don't ever remember the academy being a Grace, Roger Gracie, Gracie Baja logo. Mm. I always remember the academy as his yeah. own logo. So I think he won all of his world championships. Mauricio was saying he won all of his world championships with Gracie Baja, like as in like he was wearing Gracie Baja geese when he did it. Um, um, maybe his academy was always Roger Gracie. Though. I think his academy was always yeah. Roger Gracie. Um, but I, I mean, yeah. It, it, I know, I know there were issues with um, uh, Legato, the other Legato. Um, oh God, what's his name? Um, where they were both Gracie Baja, and the other guy left Gracie Baja because he thought Roger, he felt Roger was being preferred. Um, mm. MMA guy, um, oh. um, the crocodile. Uh, Jacare. Jacare, yeah, not yeah. Legato, Jacare. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it could <clears> all be under Gracie Baja. I know I know a lot of the Gracies then became Gracie Elite as a competition team, but I'm not sure if that's the case anymore. Um, so while, back to, well, yeah, while at Purple Belt, um, because I was competing a lot um, and doing, I was training sometimes twice a day at Roger Gracie Academy. Um, I had had the four stripes on my purple belt for a long time. So on the day of the grading, um, I had uh, quite a few people coming up to me. Ah, that's you. You're going to get your brown. You're going to get your brown. And the grading days are long. They can be up to three hours long. And they go start from the whites to the blues, blues to the purples, um, and purples to the brown. And they called up like, eight to 10, and then suddenly they're onto the black belts. I was like, ah, oh, damn it, it's not me. And I was a little bit like, I was defeated in the moment because I'd been a four stripe uh, purple for two years at the academy. I had also managed to get to number four in the rankings of IBJJF. Um, I'd won quite a lot of tournaments in the UK and in Europe. Um, and so I was like a little bit like, what more do I need to do? Mm. Um, at the end of the grading, as everyone's going around and congratulating, I had three people come up to me and congratulate me. <laughs> and I was like, sorry, buddy, it didn't happen. <laughs> and I was like, where were you? <laughs> were you not in the room? Did you not see? Um, at, at, which I think a lot of people were expecting me to get it. Um, and so they're doing the um, post-grading photo. 
And while doing the post-grading photo, suddenly Roger and one of the instructors, ah, guys, we forgot some belts. Um, and they sent someone off to go and grab some belts. And again, like a couple of people turned to me as like, ah, this is for you, this is for you. And they hand out two more belts <laughs> and it's not for me. I was like, oh, God damn it. Um, and so they do a couple of pictures and then uh, my buddy Tom grabs one of the instructors and is like, why wasn't Richard graded? And then the, the instructor looks at me and is like, <laughs> pulls a face and calls Roger and Roger's like we need to get one more it's like ah guys hang on we forgot one more belt <laughs> um, and at that stage they're done with the photos so I got my belt while everybody is still in like the um, sitting down for the photos against the wall and yeah. I had to come up from the back through like 40 people to get to the front and then go back in so, <laughs> so you got like half your photos done with your purple belt still on yeah <laughs> like the brown belt yeah um and it's a it's a it's a cool story I was like I say to people I was forgotten like three times mm. <laughs> Um, and it may, rather than just walking up, getting a belt and sitting back down, it makes for an interesting story. Mm. Um, and then the brown belt, um, as well, because the, I missed, um, I missed my first grading to go from brown to black. Um, what happens is you get called to say you need to be at the grading because a black belt, when you get your black belt, you need to prepare a speech. I'd been preparing my speech the day I got my brown belt. Um, and leading up to the grading, I it always falls on the same day as world no gi. And so I mentioned to a lot of the higher belts, I mentioned to a lot of the instructors what's happening with the grading because I want to do World's No Gi. What's happening, what's happening, what's happening. And they was like, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. And so it got to the point where I needed to book flights and accommodation, otherwise I'm gonna miss this opportunity to do World's No Gi. And they hadn't set a date. Um, so I booked that. And then a week later, they set the date and I wasn't informed that I had to be at the grading. So it's like, okay, so it's not happening this year. Um, I, I go and do World's No Gi. Um, I suspect I had COVID leading up to it. Um, and so while feeling like, like absolute garbage um, and competing, this was on the... I was keep competing on the Sunday and feeling like absolute garbage sitting away from everyone in the top of the stands. I suddenly start getting a whole influx of messages on my phone. Where are you? Um, three people, again, three people um, contact me. It's like, Roger called out your name. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, fuck. Ah, <laughs> oh, damn it. Um, I'm at World's No Gi. I told people I was going to go do World's No Gi. And I was like, ah, oh. um, <laughs> what does this mean? It's like, oh, I'm probably going to have to wait until August next year when they then do the summer grading because they only grade every two, uh, every six months. Yeah. Um, and so I, I competed at World's Nogi. I got bronze. I, I was still feeling absolutely dog shit um, from COVID. 
And so it was like, it was like a, a weird, it was a bittersweet. It's like, I'm worthy of my black belt, but I'm not there to get it. Mm. And yeah. Um, so we then run into 2020 and COVID hits, which forces shut all the academies, which then means that uh, the summer grading is canceled. And so I was like, okay, it's going to have to be the next one. And it was also touch and go if we would have a grading in the December of 2020, 2020 because the cases were rising again and there was all the, we're going to have to lock down again. We were in a tier three That's and right. yeah. no public gatherings. There were still the gym restrictions and how many people you can come in. And so it was very touch and go if there would even be a December grading. The December grading happened and it was, they had to split it up. They couldn't have so many people in. And even then we weren't allowed ourselves, we weren't allowed to video or film, um, which um, it took a long time for me to get um, the video of the day. Um, so you normally, <coughs> normally the grading would happen in front of like 200 people. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, my black belt grading, there was only the bronze to blacks um, that were happening. And um, wh when I got the call, it was like a week before. It was like, you need to prepare a speech. It's like, like, yeah, okay, I've got my speech. I've, <laughs> I've been, got a I've in been, parchment. <laughs> I've been practicing this speech. I've been um, formatting this speech for like two years now. Um, but my speech was um, was for... It wasn't for the higher belts in the room. My speech was for the white belts, the blue belts in the room on like the only difference between me and you is time. Um, if you're here, you will, if you're here in 10 years time, you will be standing where I'm standing and it's worth every step of the journey. And it was a very motivational speech for whites. And I was like, well, I can't do that speech anymore. So I was mm -hmm. like, I had a speech prepped. And so this is not that speech. This is the tribute to that speech type thing. <laughs> so tenacious D's tenacious song tribute. This is not the greatest speech in the world. This is a tribute. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Well, let's go. Uh, I'm going to just do a reset this camera real quick, and then we'll carry on. All right. No worries. Go ahead. <laughs> That's awesome to the see. The old clapping. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So um, tell me a bit, I mean, we, you kind of touched on it a bit there, but you had a really successful um, competition career at, at Brown Belt, right? Mm. Tell, me, cause, tell me a bit about that. Um, so it all starts at Purple Belt. Um, I'd done a couple of competitions at White and a couple of, a couple of competitions at Blue. And especially at Blue, I was always way out of my depth. I was always manhandled and ragdolled and didn't enjoy it. And... Um, I think I, I, around that time, around purple belt time, I got into a lot of like personal development and um, why be average. And I didn't want to be just another black belt who's done the 10 years and so they get a belt. Hmm. Um, I'd also, I knew I'd eventually want to open up an academy. And while having a good comp competition track record is important, well, it's not 
it's not essential, it not only shows that you can practice what you preach, but more so it helps if you have students that want to compete that you can walk them through scenarios, you can walk them through mindsets, you can help them with um, weight cutting, um, not saying weight cutting, but like the more information things, that you have, yeah. then the easier it is. Um, they're having a bad weight cut, what do they need to do? They need to pack on weight, what do they need to do? They're too stressed uh, the night before, what do they need to do? All that, um, if you go through it yourself, um, you can, it, rather than just dispensing knowledge, you, you because you've been there, um, there's more of like a, an, um, is it emphatic um, connection that happens? Like, I've been there, buddy. I know what you're going through. Um, it sucks. It's, or it's awesome. Um, so at Purple Belt, I started competing. And it was, it was 18, it was 10 tournaments. 18 matches over nearly two years of losing every match. The first match at Purple Belt, I lost 15-2. Uh, the next match at Purple Belt, I was subbed in a minute. The next match at Purple Belt, I lost 12-4. And... Um, I knew as long as I could see even just a little bit of progress, then getting absolutely smashed and destroyed and manhandled and ragdolled, um, I would eventually get to a point where um, that's not happening. And so it took a long time. 18 matches without a win um, was, <laughs> it was tough. Mm. Um, and I still, I, like the first ever ever match I I won was at uh, the British Open I I lost the year before and the year before was when I was subbed within a minute the guy did a foot sweep and uh, foot sweep arm bar on me and it was just over so quickly the next year I won and I won uh, two zero on points, and it was like a, oh, fuck. Now I belong in this division. Now I'm here. Now it's like I I feel like I can call myself a proper purple belt because I've won a match. Um, and the next tournament was a smaller tournament where I I won two matches, and then from there it slowly started to progress and to progress and to progress until. Um, the London Open 2016 was the first IBJJF event that I entered. Um, and uh, I had like six matches, seven matches on the day. And because it was IBJJF, I didn't have any expectations. This is like there's people flying in from all over the world. I don't recognize any of the names in my in my brackets, um, in my belts. It's guys from Morocco. It's guys from France. It's guys from Greece. I I'm just there just to 
just to see what it was like. And it was probably like the one of the best tournaments I had. Um, I ended up with double gold. And uh, my absolutes final was the very, very last match of the day. Um, the mats were being cleared <clears throat> all around. The other mats were being cleared. The stations were being taken down. And it was a couple of the guys from Ray Stevens Academy, my training partners, and a couple of the guys from Gracie Baja London Bridge who I was doing a lot of competition training with um, were there to watch. And it was at after that that I was like, I wonder how far I can actually take this in the comp um, competition. At that stage, because it was the first IBJJF, I jumped up 70 points. So I was ranked like 930 out of like 1,200 in the world. Right. <laughs> like, oh, my first ranking points, awesome. <laughs> um, and so it was like, it was then a like, let's see how high I can climb up the rankings. And at that stage, I was just primarily focused on gi. I didn't want to distract from the gi. Yeah. And by the time I got my brown belt, I was ranked number four in the world um, in Master Two Purple Belt. Um, I had a lot of. Um, I only did Europeans as my big tournament. I only entered into Europeans as my big tournament, but. Um, my last year, I got quite sick, so I had to stay in the hotel. So uh, there was a little bit of regret not having like a European, a pan, or one of the big medals mm. um, with the purple belt. And so with the brown, the aim was to beat that. I was like, I'm going to get higher than fourth. Um, the first competition at brown was Europeans, and I got a silver medal. Again, I was <laughs> I was uh, beaten very easily in the final. Um, the guy was very good. He just smashed everybody. Um, he got me with a paper cutter choke. Mm. Um, but uh, first first competition at Brown Silver at Europeans, and so it's like this is going to be the same. Um, and it wasn't. Brown was awful again for the first couple of months right. um, but then you reach the level where you're then hanging with everybody um, and then you reach the level where the people that were giving you issues are now struggling to keep up with you and I'd say you can you, you notice the change in a match because you go from being the indecisive and frantic and trying to make something work to being cool calm and relaxed and that then there's a switch that there's a power dynamic switch that happens um and yeah the eventually got to number one um ranking at brown belt and i decided then to see if i can match that with the nogi and I started doing a lot more of the Nogi competitions. I think I climbed up to number 30, but then we had COVID and um, because of that, it was, I could never get higher in the thing. Mm. So now for Black Belt, 
I've got two goals. I've got to beat 30 and I've got to get to number one again. <laughs> so He's good, man. Yeah. Wow. So um, out of all your competition, oh, man, there's so much to unpack there. Uh, I guess I'll go further back than that. What what happened f- for you training-wise, men- mentality-wise, from uh, losing those kind of uh, uh, first 18 matches and the couple of ones you might have done at Blue Belt and stuff like that? What, what do you feel were the actual changes that had, that had occurred? Mm. Because at the academy I was at, there was not a lot of, um, there weren't anyone that was competing. So it was, it, I couldn't draw on other people's experiences and I couldn't, um, I couldn't, I couldn't problem solve what was happening. And so it became a, I knew I was going to lose. I knew I was going to lose horribly. But in every match, there would be something that I could fix. And so it became a, uh, I keep getting, I keep getting um, single leg. And so then I'd go back to my coach. It's like, this is, keeps on happening. How do I stop this? Mm. And then I kept on getting triangled. And so it's like, I keep trying to then figure out how to stop being triangled, recognizing the setups. Um, and I still have that where um, they were at Brown Belt, they were, especially in the Nogi, there were three tournaments in a row where I was toe-holded. And um, different entries into the toe-holds, but still being toe-holded. And I was like, okay, so I have to go back to my coach, uh, Tom, and be like, there's a glaring hole. There's somehow I'm a, I'm always leaving my right foot exposed. What can we do? How do I recognize, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you then. no worries. And so, um, it's okay. And so those eighteen <clears throat> matches, I knew I was not going to win. Um, getting points on the board was a was a moral victory not being tapped was a moral victory um in those 18 matches my defense skyrocketed and i it's very easy when you're losing to become disheartened and to um not want to compete i see so many people that compete once and then like and they lose and they're like it's a it's a blow to the ego and it shouldn't be, especially it's it's lower belts. It should be you're doing this to learn. There's no growth without discomfort. And the worse you lose, the more you can take from that loss to improve yourself. Right. Yeah. So it's it's being deliberate about that learning process, not yeah. just like going out and yeah. all right, I've lost. Okay, on to the next one. It's like okay, yeah. why did I lose? What can I? Yeah. Right. I, I got taken down. Why did I get taken down? Yeah. So you've got to be really deliberate about why you're practicing. Yeah. Um, don't get me wrong. Like winning feels fantastic. Mm. Um, and it's why we, we do that is so that we can have that sense of elation, that sense of like conquering. Um, but to get there, um, you have to be prepared to suck you're going to come across so many people better than you until you reach their level well I was speaking to Legato yesterday he was saying about you know 
you got to think about he when he when he was training for his competition. So he was thinking like, well, when I'm training today, the guy I'm going to face, maybe Shakare, like, mm. like is is going to be out, and he's probably going to be training just as hard as I am. Yeah. Right. So what are the things that I can do that are going to give me the edge yeah. in the match? Like, is it going to be my my mentality on the day? Is it going to mm-hmm. be the reason why I'm there? Or you know, that's self belief kind of things. Did you have anything like outside of the training room that you would kind of try and take in with you into the match? Mm. Always be happy. Um, I I mean, it, it's <clears> been... <throat> and so I play a lot of like cheesy, cheesy music. My playlist is like most of the time it's ABBA. And so when I'm in the bullpen, I'm listening to ABBA because it's <laughs> like, it's, it's super cheesy. It makes me happy. Um, and... um when you're when you're stressed or when you're um anxious um you're more likely to adrenaline dump and if you adrenaline dump you're more likely to tire yourself out quicker there's only so much that your body can take um butterflies in the stomach etc etc um, so my thing going into competition was I needed to I needed to be in the mindset that this is a good day out. I'm there to see friends. I'm there to catch up socially with people I haven't seen. Um, and the matches are are there. Um, it's not a fight. Um, the big th- switching point was like this is it's yeah it's turning the my matches it's not into a fight it's a problem solving exercise mm. and from there i actually enjoyed my matches a lot more and there's a few matches where a guy would do something and i'd laugh because like i wasn't expecting that that's awesome whereas if i was in a fight that would be like ah oh, fuck oh, and then tensing up and um and i think that's helped me a lot with competition it's made me relaxed on the day it's made me relaxed leading up to it um yeah and so i always i also always felt like i had better cardio than most of the people in uh, my division and it was because i think i was more relaxed going right. in yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I, was, I always found that like you know when you can roll with like because obviously i've got a load of um white belts to roll with right now but some of them are like you know really good at like crossfit and things like that probably wait in a general kind of sense, way fitter than I am. Mm-hmm. But just because I can stay so much more relaxed in the role, yeah. like I can do so many more rounds than them in the then, making yeah. room, okay? They go at 110 kilometers for five minutes, yeah. and then they need a, that, right. that's them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's always yeah. interesting. And then they're like, how's your cardio? So I've got terrible cardio, I promise <laughs> you. I can just stay pretty chilled out. I know when to like use like a little bit of energy in the yeah, when, that's yeah. like, when there's no point using like to try to explode out of things I'm not going to explode out of. Yeah. Um, which is always interesting. Yeah. Um, and you were saying a little bit about um, you didn't want to be like a, a, a bad black belt. Um, and I remember it kind of brought to my mind listening to uh, Dan O'Hare on the Lex Friedman podcast yeah. where, where Lex Friedman asked him um, what does it take uh, to be a jiu-jitsu black belt? And Dan Hill was like, not that much, to be honest. <laughs> like, yeah. There's a ton of like, black, like, bad black belts out there. Yeah. Um, for you, what, I'll ask you the same question. Like, what, what do you think it takes to be a black belt then? <clears throat> oh, rather, sorry, I'll change that slightly. What does it take to be a good black belt? Uh, 
I look at um, I look at the people that um, a good black belt for me is someone that um, is still improving their skills even though they are black belt. There's been a couple of instances where I'm trying to figure out a position, especially when I was a purple belt, brown belt, I'd approach a black belt and be like, um, I'm having issues in this position. Um, what do you know about this position? And at the time it was 50-50. 50-50 was um, the big position in competitions. People were constantly getting into it. Um, this was maybe about like six, seven years ago. Um, and um, there were a couple of black belts I asked and they were like, it's not, not interesting to me, so I don't do mm. it. Um, as, and there are in other black belts that are still trying to keep up with the new things that are happening. Um, that to me is a good black belt. It's, it's not your one and done. Um, it's a, it's a malleable art that's always changing and you've got to, you've got to go with the changes, um, techniques that were that you were taught and that were part of your repertoire 10 years ago are not as effective as what the new things coming out are. And so you're going to be left behind. Um, and I, I think then also for me, it's a personal thing, like uh, also attitude. Um, there's nothing worse than someone that feels entitled or um, better than because they have a black belt. And I tend not to hang around those people. People that refuse roles or like expect like decorum or expect like um, you don't ask a black belt to roll. Those, like, what the fuck? Mm. <laughs> They're just people. Yeah. What do you think makes a good coach or professor? Hmm. Um, attention to detail. Um, so in, in, in teaching, uh, attention to detail, um, concepts, um, scenarios, and problem solving, I think, are quite important when you're showing a technique. Why are we doing it this way? Um, what has led us to get to this point that we do it this way? Um, what are the potential counters that could happen and why they're more likely to do this counter than that counter? Um, and then, um, and so that's, so when I'm showing a technique, I'll go through all of these things beforehand before demonstrating them a couple of times and making sure that I break it down into simple steps, i.e. like these are your five steps to do the move correctly. Grip here, do this, hip this way, etc., etc., etc. So that people can, um, that are more physical, know that there's a five-step process. People that learn better by visual can see it. And then people that learn better by instruction, um, trying to mix all of it in together. From there, 
it's then seeing what the most common issues are in the position to then fix that. And so a good instructor, um, I've come across a few instructors that will show a move and then like, but then you can also do this, but then you can also do this. And then when it comes to drill, it's like, what am I actually doing? Which one do you want me to focus on? Mm. Or even then it's, um, um, I'm not sure why this works and I'm not sure why my opponent would be doing this type thing. Um, in terms of coaching your students, i.e. for competition, um, they're in between competitions is where you get skills acquisition. Um, you're not gonna pick up a new technique in the week, possibly even two weeks before, before a competition. When you get to competition, you're gonna go on muscle memory, you're gonna go on what's part of your game. So trying to learn something new in the week, two weeks before, very rarely are you gonna hit it, or are you gonna pull it off? And so as a coach, you've got to be aware that while you're trying to fix problems, you also can't add anything that they're not going to use because you're going to take away from fixing other things. Um, like I think the best coaches right now, probably the best coach right now is um, uh, Marilla Santana from Unity uh, in New York. There are just so many people coming out of that gym that are doing phenomenally well at both no gi and gi, and he pays a lot of attention to detail. Um, I know, and I've read that he gets, um, he will watch and study videotapes or get his coaches to watch and study videotapes of the matches that are, or the opponents that are coming up. Um, well, when we say attention to detail for jiu-jitsu, what does that mean? So it's the, um, you're doing, let's say you're doing a throw um, and it will be making sure that, like in a sotogari, um, which is just your standard uh, stepping through throw. Um, I'm sure, I'm hoping your white belts will know what an sotogari is. But then the attention to detail, the standard way would be to grip the collar, to grip the elbow, step out to the side, bring your hip through and swing as you're, um, using your upper body to push the person down. The attention to detail comes in where you're looking at, the coach can see, okay, you're a little bit taller than your opponent. And so rather than gripping here, you're gonna change your grip and you're gonna come over a little bit. Or if you're smaller, what you need to do is make sure that you're gripping a little bit more tighter around so you can pull that elbow in more. And so, it's recognizing the different body types, it's recognizing the different styles and doing the small adjustments or recognizing where the small adjustments will be to make the technique work for that particular person. Um, a lot of instructors, coaches are stock, cut, copy, paste. You do it this way, you do it this way. Um, I, I know for me, I'm not that flexible and so for me to play sort of open guards, I have to move in a particular way 
to get through to my spider, my collar sleeve, my short leg lasso. Um, whereas someone that's super flexible just has to go and it's there. And so I can then recognize when I see inflexible people, okay, you might need to move this way. Okay, you've got a hip impingement. You might need to do this kind of movement to get into that position. Yeah. And that's where the small <clears throat> adjustments come in. Would there be any um, issue in trying to aspire to attention to detail, but maybe fall into micromanaging a student when they might need to try and learn some things for themselves? Or is, would it always, do you think, be better to show them a... I don't know if, if there even is such a thing, but is there like such a thing of like the perfect example of a technique? Um, hmm. So I think there's two things that you're saying there. Like micromanaging, yes, is never good. Um, a lot of my own jiu-jitsu has, has come from self-discovery. It's come from being shown a technique, not being able to make it work and how the instructor wants me to do it. And then in open mats and sparring, figuring out, okay, maybe if I hold it a little bit with this grip or change my grip or change my hip positioning, maybe I can get it to work. Mm. Um, the... The goal, I think, is, is never to try and box people into techniques. It's to allow them the freedom of expression to find out. But then the attention to detail comes through in recognizing where they're hitting sticking points. And so it's like, do this. And then it opens up a whole new avenue for them. I, I guess would that, would that become from just having a really profound, in-depth knowledge of a technique so into that you know it can right for me it works this way and this is the way i'll show it but because of like mm. the things you were saying earlier this might not be the exact way for you the other mm. way it might be see i don't <clears throat> I, I don't approach it as like i've got a profound knowledge i like i really don't know a lot mm. um there's so much to jujitsu and so much in so many positions that i'm still i still I'm still a beginner, essentially. Um, and so it's more, uh, it's more problem solving. It's just more like, try it this way, try it this way. Maybe if you do this, rather than this is the way. Um, so you kind of help them more explore. Yeah. Or explore, explore. Right. And um, it's been shown that people work best, problem solve best when something is like just a little bit beyond their comprehension um, where it's just that little bit too tricky that's when the brain is working its hardest to problem solve and so just changing the grips just changing the positioning a little bit um, helps with a, a approaching things from a different angle mm. so it's not like i'm fixing their mistakes i'm just helping them problem solve for themselves um i guess then when when we talk about attention to detail in, in that context it can be um because yeah you're, you're the coach you can see it from a third person you yeah. can see them doing it from a third person perspective yeah you i can, can see like, why it's not working yeah. and so it's like yeah rather than 
rather than seeing the avenue to making it work, it's more like I can see why you're not making it work in this moment. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then back to, is there an example of a technique done perfectly? Um, I think the only, I mean, any time you catch a sub, I think um, that's the technique being done perfectly. If you didn't catch the sub perfectly, then you wouldn't you wouldn't have it. Hmm. Um, but in saying that, like the most perfect technique would probably be probably be Rogers cross collar choke, choke from mount. Um, there was a tournament where he had like nine matches. It was world championships where he took the mount and cross collar choked everyone. Um, with the same technique and this is high level black belts that he's using a white belt move on and if that's not the execution perfect execution of a technique then i don't know what is is there juxtaposed to that is there um and i like that you know there's that saying like if you um i think I remember it was like sebastian garnier saying um like a if it's ninety nine percent wrong, uh, right? It's a hundred percent wrong. <laughs> like, mm. if, if you know, because if you're one percent off, you'll still won't get the you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, the margins, the margins that people work in for finishing a move or defending a move, are minuscule mm. sometimes between tapping and not tapping. Is there? Um, do you think there's techniques that have become? Uh, uh, I'm going to use the word dumbed down, but mm -hmm. uh, for lack of a kind of, but dumbed down so that people can understand it at a lower level and we teach, and you teach them to, teach them that because they're ready to learn that and then they can then build upon it or should you always start with, this is the best example of this technique? Hmm. Hmm. I actually, I haven't thought of it that way. I, don't, I haven't thought of like techniques being dumbed down. I think maybe some of the self-defense stuff is not as beneficial as what it's made out to be. And the fundamentals that you learn at white belt um, applied correctly, can, you can use them at all belt levels or the fundamentals that I've learned at White Belt. Um, I guess maybe, I, wa I don't want to say heel hooks have been dumbed down, but eight, nine years ago, um, especially when Paul Harris and a few others were in UFC, I remember heel hooks being absolutely petrified of heel hooks. Um, and just because they were seen as the scary thing, ah, oh, blew out the knee and never going to work properly again, et cetera, et cetera. And I think now that they've become mainstream and part of like no gi worlds, you can do heel hooks, that a technique that was seen as forbidden, seen as a career ending, seen as um, um, long-term injury, has now crossed over to the mainstream where done in the right way, it can be pretty safe if you're not an idiot and tap when you're meant to tap. 
Yeah. Um, I guess that can be seen as like something that's dumbed down. I think the approach to it um, changed a lot, right? Because I think when Paul Harris and before they would almost kind of like jump onto a leg lock and try to snap it on. Yeah. Whereas I think the Danaher system it was was more focused on how can we end up in a position of such control that yeah. we could put it on or not put it on and they wouldn't have a choice. <laughs> like yeah. We just have to wait there until we did it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think also Paul Harris had a reputation of not letting go. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, because... Heel hooks and whatnot were always legal at ADCC, and I guess the only person that was regular was uh, constant with them was Dean Lister. Um, before then, like when did it start becoming match again? Like Gordon Ryan again? I guess there's always there was always some like, there was people, always a few, like, but they were never. Eric Paulson was like one guy that was in the UK yeah. early on doing it. Yeah, um, but it was never as. So I think um, who was the guy? Frank was it Frank Shamrock got like some UFC one, I think, with a heel hook. Yeah, um, but it was never. I mean, in jiu-jitsu circles, it was never, or even in ADCC, it was your occasional guy that would specialize, rather yeah. than it became an arsenal. It's now like. You have to know heel hooks. Mm. Um, you have to know um, the defense to them. Whereas before it was um, the occasional guy would be doing it and you just, oh, he's the leg locks. I'm going to keep my legs away from him. <laughs> do you think it should be allowed in the gi? And do you think it should be allowed at lower belt levels? Hmm. You know what? I like, I like the fact that... Um, I like the fact that the no gi allows heel hooks and the gi doesn't. I think it's going to lead to two very different looking styles of jiu-jitsu. Um, and I think it will keep the gi a little bit more traditional uh, in um, what you can and can't do. Um, I think there's going to be a huge there's going to be a huge growth in the nogi because of the leg attack game. Um, I can see nogi worlds getting almost as big, if not bigger, than gi worlds. I mean, ADCC is looking like it's going to be absolutely massive this year. Um, in terms, and so yeah, I know the reason why they don't allow heel hooks in the gi is because there's. With the material, it's a lot harder to clear the knee to escape. Um, and if you can't, it's, especially with there being a lot more grip, it just means that I think you can get more torque on it. Um, mm. Whereas e even if you're talking, there's still a little bit of slip that can happen in Nogi. Yeah. Um, in teaching it to youngsters, uh, I, I think... It's, it's a tough one because there are some tournaments that allow heel hooks at white belt, which I think is a little bit silly. Um, and so you will always have people going through to those tournaments. And so they need to know heel hook attacks and heel hook defenses. Thing is, when you're a white belt, you're a fucking spaz. Um, there's no control. You're going, you're still in the mindset that this is a fight that I have to win. 
And so there's never a, um, I'm generalizing, but when you're putting on submissions, you're going for the kill. And so I think there's a lot more scope for serious injuries in those respects as white belt. Um, if I, if I had to dictate, I would say, um, at blue belt, um, you learn heel hook defense. Um, at purple belt, you learn heel hook attacks. And so you have a, a fully understanding of how to defend heel hooks before you start applying them on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think that would probably be the way to go about it because then by the time you get to brown belt where in IBJJF heel hooks are allowed, you have a comprehensive um, defense and uh, offense and defense with it. I think throwing people straight in, um, there's so many times where P- I see in classes where um, it's like, guys, you have to be careful. Um, heel hooks are very serious and heel hooks are being put on and people are trying to like roll out of them the wrong way. If I can show them how to defend first, mm. <laughs> show them how to defend because they are going to get people that put it on. And if they don't know how to get out of it, that's them out for several months. Yeah, I guess the the pain factor is like a big part of it because, you know, there's at the end of the day, you're trying to break people's limbs, whether it's a Kimura, which is a similar twist in kind of uh, lock, Mm. an armbar or um, a straight ankle lock or a heel Mm. lock, right? Um, However, with like straight arm lock, as soon as I'm here, like I can feel it. Uh, the camera's died, by the way, but uh, I've got a straight arm right now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can feel like like it'll start to become very uncomfortable. Once someone's kind of got me into a that kind of like an inside heel hook position, it feels yeah. like my legs it twisting feels, a bit, but not. It too... feels like a stretch. Yeah, it, and that's the problem. It feels like a stretch until it pops, yeah. and then there's suddenly the pain. Um, so yeah. Well, yeah. luckily we we aren't the. <laughs> I beat you for guys so I have to deliver it. Oh, and ADCC, no heel hooks after 30. <laughs> so I'm oh, safe. Yeah. 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 Um, do you, uh, on that though, just to finish up, uh, do you see maybe the, you know, Gordon Ryan spoke a little while back about he thinks the gi's going to completely die out. Do you, do you think that um, this kind of current like rise of uh, Nogi is just as it's been before, like a, um, you know, like a, it come in fashion for a bit and then it'll go back down again and it'll come in waves? No. Or is this I, a different thing? I, th- I think it's a different thing. Like year on year, every, I mean, every ADC is getting more and more popular than the last. Um, and I don't, while I don't see the gi um, fading away into obscurity, I think what's going to happen is you're going to get two distinct branches of jiu-jitsu. You're going to get no gi specialists and you're going to get gi specialists. And the crossover between the two is going to become rarer and rarer. Um, I mean, back in the day, if you were a gi world champion, um, you're also pretty good, no gi. But I think now, 
the the meta in both disciplines is very different the approaches are very different the exchanges are very different um yeah um you will always get your um standouts like i think Cole Abate hmm. will be both a gi and an ogi world champion. I think Mikhail Galvao will be a gi and an ogi champion. I don't know about the Rutolos because I think they're more no gi. But you'll get less and less people that cross over between the two as the as they as the as no gi becomes more popular. Yeah. Um two uh two points I've got for you there. I think uh, yeah, I think I think you're right as well. I think um, I think Nogi will become a lot more popular and I think it's mainly to do with the marketing of it mm. as well because you see such great kind of cards that like who's number one and uh, yeah. all the stuff Flow Grappling is doing right now is just so much more accessible I think than watching IBJJF Worlds yeah. or Europeans right um, and I think from my experience of knowing people coming into Jiu Jitsu a lot of it, like a surprising amount of it is they've seen the UFC yeah. or they listen to Joe Rogan's podcast. Yeah. And and I think the easier correlation, you know, just looking at the one-on-one, it's like what looks more like the thing that they've got like, pictured in their head is mm. probably Nogi, right? It's probably Nogi. Yeah. Um, it's so much easier for, like, if you think of how many people from wrestling go into jiu-jitsu, yeah. um, it's so much easier to go to Nogi than... This, this, I have, I have this problem as well. Like, why, why is it saying like in Gracie Baja, for instance, like you need to be GB two to do nogi, which is three stripe white belt and above. Yeah. So, gi jiu jitsu is considered more basics and fundamentals than nogi. Yeah. yeah. However, I, I don't think it, that was the case because, like, with gi jiu jitsu, like all the grips are, I think, more. Unnaturally, they got like two extra limbs in a way, right? With the yeah. lapels, yeah. And you can, and the way someone's controlling you is like through your clothing. Whereas I think I can understand someone grabbing my wrist more yeah. than say like spider spider guard. Yeah. Or I can understand someone grabbing like a collar tie more than I can like someone yeah. being able to like wrap my lapel around my head and you know, bravo kind of style me, um, which I always found kind of interesting. Yeah. Um. On the other point was. Uh, do you think Cole, um, what's his surname? Abate. Uh, should, Abate? should still be allowed to be a blue belt. <laughs> um, I mean, winning ADCC trials. Um, and also, didn't he win who's number one, that tournament? He did, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's the same with Mikael Galvao mm-hmm. um, and a few others. They're, they're just guys um, that are, they're black belts, but through the letter of the law and the technicalities they can't be black belts um and unfortunately cole <coughs> abate he's 16 he's blue belt he still has to go through his purple belt he still has to go through his brown belt he still has to go through his black belt to be able to do the ibjjf competitions if he gets promoted too soon then they won't recognize his belt and so he can't do nogi worlds and etc etc mm-hmm. so while this guy is possibly one of the best in the world He's still, like, imagine being a purple belt and like, oh, God, I've got him in my <laughs> division. This is a guy that can, has a big chance to win ADCC. 
it's, oh. it, it, I heard his, his uh, coach speaking about like, hey, you shouldn't even be thinking about that. You should be thinking about, right, this is the new standard for, for yeah. Blue Belts and yeah. it should rise all the time. Oh, this you know? was at the juvenile world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Um, where should he be allowed? It's like, yes, it's like, it's <laughs> when you have outliers like that, they should be celebrated because it raises the level. Um, rather than get rid of him because it makes everyone else look bad. It's like, no, that's what you should be aspiring to. Mm. Um, I think Jiu-Jitsu is really weird in, in that as well. Like the hobbyists are also the prof- like, and professionals kind of all compete in the same tournaments. Mm. Like, you know, we can go apply to, you know, do a couple of IBJF contents, yeah. do all right, and then go to Worlds. Yeah. And then you've got like, you know, people who just train as their full-time like kind of thing. World Masters is this week. And that's like, well, who's in World Masters this year? I think Wadzinski, because he's over 30. The Miao brothers are over 30. Um, Hamalu Bahal and Cyborg is there every year. So it's like, oh, these guys might be in my division. <laughs> awesome. Crazy. Yeah. Okay, Richard. Um, well, thank you very much for doing this. Unfortunately, the SD card uh, ran out of uh, space at some point. So they get to see us for a good 30 minutes at least. Uh, no worries. And uh, we're... we're, we're just audio from then on. Cool. But, uh, thanks for doing this again, man. Uh, pleasure. Pleasure again. But, uh, first time was awesome. And uh, yeah, this if, has been lots of fun. If you want to hear a bit more about Richard's life um, outside of Jiu-Jitsu, you can go check out the Tier 1 podcast. Richard got some crazy stories about being carjacked twice, yeah. <laughs> which blew my mind and still blew my, blew my mind. Um, and yeah, he tells some great stories there too. So go check those out. And um you can also reach Richard on Instagram, Obi. Obi underscore one underscore BJJ. BJJ. And um, if you're over in London, you can catch some of his classes at. Um, um, right now, currently just at Wave Jiu Jitsu in Chiswick, but I'm always at Roger Gracie Academy, um, occasionally training at the Buddha Kwai and at Ray Stevens Academy in Wimbledon. Awesome. Okay, bud, let's go get some food. Yeah, definitely. All right, see you later, Thank guys. Thank you very much.